You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subjects to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and we ask that you give us ears to hear, minds to understand and hearts ready to respond to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to be, uh, to be here with you this morning. It's good to be back preaching after I think I worked out there's five Sundays that I, um, that I haven't preached. I should say, uh, if you don't know who I am, um, welcome um, to those who are new. Um, not just, or maybe new in the new last five weeks, you haven't seen me preaching, but I, uh, I'm the, uh, the senior minister here at Grace Anglican Churches. And uh, it is good to be back. I, I had um, a week at Gledswood Hills and then some holidays, and then I've been, um, uh, quite a bit of time has been spent on a, a grant submission for the West Invest Community Program. That, I'm pleased to say, is done. It's submitted. Um, we'll find out the results later in the year in uh, November, December. Very grateful to Ben and to Mick and Sam and Gav who've preached um, over these last few weeks, but it's good to be back. There's a lot in Titus 2, so um, let's get into it. But I want to start by um, asking you if you could change something about your life, what would you change? There's a question that'll come up on the screen here. Uh, James is flying blind this morning. No, there's no question that's coming up on the screen. All good. Um, if you, you, can, you can grab that though. If, if there's something that you would change about your life, what would it be? Maybe if you, if you just like 30 seconds, if you're comfortable, talk to the person next to you. What would you, what would you change if you could change, change something in your life? What might it be? Just, just have, a chat, have a chat to the person next to you. That's a good answer. But take, take 30 seconds, talk to the person next to you, and then we'll, we'll uh, take some responses. Thank you, Phyllis.
All right, that'll do. Um, our tech gurus will sort out what's going on with the screen, but we don't need the screen anyway. Um, all right, anyone want to be brave and suggest an answer that they or their friend might have said, something they'd like to change? Phyllis has said, change your age. <laughs> anyway, any other suggestions? It may be a deeply personal question. You don't feel you have to share to everyone, but... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, there's, some, there's some good and deep thoughts. I think there are lots of things that, uh, I think all of us in different ways, there's things that we, you know, we'd like to change or ways we'd like to grow or improve, uh, improve our lives in, in, in certain ways. Maybe uh, for those who are young starting out in life, there might be all sorts of aspirations about um, career or aspirations about relationships. Uh, maybe that for, for all of us, there, there can be things about the quality of life that we'd, we'd like to, to change, maybe have less busyness or less stress or, or more money or more experiences or something. Uh, maybe there are health you know, issues that, that we would like to, to change, um, or maybe some personal goal, some sort of change personally that you'd like to bring about. I think we all have hopes and aspirations of, of some sort, things that we want to change. But as we sit with those aspirations for change, we don't do that in some sort of vacuum. We actually, we're surrounded by all sorts of influences, all sorts of pressures and expectations of the world and the culture around us, things that will almost inevitably shape what we want, what we value, including what we want to change in our lives. I think as we consider those various uh, pressures and voices of the culture around us, one of the, one of the dominant conforming pressures is somewhat ironically individualism, where the, the self reigns supreme, where I define my life the way I want it to be and I define who I am, who I want to become, including how I want to change my life. I, I say it's ironic because there's great pressure to conform, to, to, be, uh, to be like and to think like everyone else in being an individual. It's kind of like the, you know, that Monty Python scene where everyone, the whole crowd shouts in unison, we're all individuals. And there's always one who's not. And yet I think we actually embrace, we all in various ways embrace individualism. In fact, it's, it's, it's natural to us in our sinful humanity. The essence of sin is to set aside what God says and to define for ourselves who we are and what we want to be. I mean, that's been going on since the Garden of Eden. And so as we, we sit here with our aspirations to change and, and as we sit amidst the various voices and pressures of our culture, as people who know God, who are in relationship with Him, well, we ought to push back against that individualistic instinct and consider what God has to say. How does how does God shape and direct our aspirations to change? Now, fortunately, we don't have to, um, to, to, to guess because God has told us plainly in, in the Bible and in the passage before us this morning, he gives us very clear direction about, about the what and the why of living change lives. The what and the why of living change lives. Now, as we, uh, we look at this as we're, we're going to this morning... Uh, it oughtn't surprise us, it ought not surprise us if what God says is actually countercultural. 
I mean, think about it. If the, if the sea in which we swim is increasingly defined and shaped by people who largely ignore or rebel against God, then it shouldn't surprise us if there's a, a mismatch between what God says and what the godless voices of our world say. So let's try to sit loosely with our culture, to sit loosely with, with our norms, our expectations, and open ourselves to listen to what God says about the what and the why of living changed lives. Now, before we get into the, uh, the what, let's start with the why. Why should we aspire to live changed lives? And I recognise that for, for some people, maybe, um, maybe for you, th- this is not really where you're at. You know, you're not really aspiring to, to change, you're just kind of plodding away through life one day at a time. I want to say God calls on us to change. And the second half of this passage tells us why, why we should aspire to change. So I'm going to go sort of backwards, start with the second part. And, uh, and it says there's something which I think is actually the most countercultural thing in this chapter. This is more politically incorrect than what this says about men and women, uh, what this says about slaves. What Paul says here is that there is a God and Saviour who has appeared and who one day will appear again. Now, that certainly challenges the godless individualism of our age. Notice verse 13, the man Jesus... Jesus who lived, who walked, who taught, who performed amazing miracles, who died and rose again, the first century man, Jesus of Nazareth, he is described there in verse 13 as our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Jesus is, is God come among us. And he gives us the reason, the motivation, the why of living changed lives. Jesus came and brought the grace of God, as verse 11 says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. The the undeserved kindness of God, that has been revealed by Jesus. Jesus who, verse 14, gave himself for us, gave his life for us. Jesus has already achieved an incredible change for us. Look there at verse 14 again, the change is twofold. Firstly, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, to, to buy us out of slavery to, to our own God-denying wickedness, to release us from living that way, redeem us, and secondly, to purify us, to purify for himself a people that are his very own. Jesus died to, to purify us, to wash us clean. Wash us from the stain of our self-centeredness and and save us to be a people who belong to him. We're we're invited into his family, redeemed from wickedness, purified, made to be his people, his treasured possession. And as such, notice the end of verse 14, we're eager to do what is good, to, to want to live the way he calls us to. That, this is the, the, the saving and transforming grace of God that has appeared to us in Jesus. In the coming of Jesus, God come among us, come to redeem us, purify us, make us his own. And this is what motivates us to, to live changed lives. 
See there in the middle of that, that, that section, verse 12, it says, it, that is the grace of God, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. The motivation for, for living changed lives, self-controlled, upright, godly lives, is the grace of God which if our trust is in Jesus, that has already freed us, that has already purified us, it's already made us to be God's people. God in his amazing grace has generously made us to be his people. And so that's, that's what we want to be. We want to be the people that he's made us to be. We're eager to live that out, which means changing. It means saying no to certain sinful stuff, ungodliness, worldly passions, saying yes to living self-controlled, upright and godly lives. And notice we, we do that with our eyes on the future. Verse 13 continues, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so we live now in light of what, what Jesus has done, redeemed, purified us, made us his own, and we live in light of what Jesus will do when he appears in glory. I mean, think about it. If Jesus was coming back tomorrow and you knew that he was coming back tomorrow, that would change how you spent the rest of this day, wouldn't it? Now, we don't know that whether Jesus came back tomorrow, he might come back tomorrow. He might come back today. I mightn't get through the, the rest of this sermon before he comes back. We don't know when he will come back, but we do know that he will come back. And so we live now waiting with that horizon in view, his glorious appearing. This is the motivation for living a changed life. The grace of God to redeem us, purify us, make us His own, change our hearts to, to want to do good while we wait for His return. It really is a, a change in our identity. Not an identity that we define for ourselves in our individualism, but one that God gives to us in Jesus. Jesus, our great God and Saviour. And so we've got, to, we've got to start with this. We've got to start with the why, with the, the motivation. And we've got to keep reminding ourselves of this. I think we, we need to keep reminding ourselves of this because it's easy for us to, to slide into either self-righteousness and a moralism where we, our motivation shifts to ourselves, where we're trying to, to, to behave in a way that is, is good enough for ourselves and therefore hopefully also good enough for God. Or we slide into, into despair and self-pity and sort of conclude, well, there's no point, I'm, I'm just so hopeless, what's the point trying? No. Jesus gave himself for us, to free us, to redeem us, to call us to be his people. That's our motivation. All right, so what does it look like to live this way? What is the, the what of living a changed life? Well, that brings us to the first half of our passage which tells us, let's, uh, let's look at this. But I want to say as we look at this, let's not look at it as, you know, someone who wants to understand Titus 2 better. Let's look at this as someone who is, who is motivated by the grace of God and is eager to live as someone who belongs to Jesus. Because that will bring real change. That will bring good change. Let's look at this. Uh, Paul says to Titus 2 verse 1, You, Titus, how, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. He's saying teach the, the way of life 
that fits with the knowledge of God, fits with the, the gospel of God's grace. And then what he does is he gives five pictures of a life that does that, that fits with sound doctrine. Interestingly, he doesn't just address everyone as the same and just give one generic list of things to do and to be. He doesn't say, teach all the people to be. He addresses different people differently according to their gender, according to their age. That is, a person is not just a generic person. They are a male person or a female person. And I know at this point we're venturing into crazy countercultural speak, something that's been recognised by all of humanity for millennia. It's just plainly obvious there are male people, there are female people, there are older people, there are younger people. We're not just generic individuals who exist in isolation. We exist in relationship as men, as women, as older, as younger that may seem obvious, but it's important to remember as we, as we live in our increasingly individualistic culture. So where do you fit in this? Are you older or younger? Uh, we might tend to identify more with one category than with another. Interestingly, I preached on this passage 16 years ago in um, my third year out of college. I looked up my old um, sermon notes that I had and it was interesting that I kind of seemed to identify myself more as the younger man. Um, <laughs> I'm not so sure anymore, this second time round. Um, but I want to say, even if you're thinking, oh yeah, yeah I'll, I'll tune in for the younger bit. Um, God willing, even if we are young, we will one day become old or older. And so we should aspire to take on the qualities of the older man, of the older woman that's, that are outlined here. Um, what's more, I think there's value in seeing these as relative terms, that is, we are all older than some other, some, and some people, and so we all have a role to play in setting an example to them, but we'll see more of that. Let's dive into this. What does he say to the older men? Verse 2, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. He's saying, older men, if, if you have sound doctrine, if you, if you know God, we'll express that in the way that you live. Uh, firstly, by being temperate. Now, what's temperate? Well, it's about being level-headed. It's about not being extreme or excessive, but restrained, not indulgent, which can be, uh, I mean, it can be used to talk about um, drinking alcohol, but it's broader than that. He's saying be, be restrained. Don't indulge yourself in your desires, your bad habits. Be, be temperate. And secondly, he says, older men, be worthy of respect, there should be a, a certain seriousness, a certain dignity in how you behave. That, that invites respect. And be self-controlled. Now, this is a theme you, you'll see throughout the passage um, for, for each of the groups. It's, it's, and this idea of self-control has got to do with the mind. It's being thoughtful about your behaviour. Having, having your mind in control of your actions. Not just acting instinctively or doing what comes you know, naturally or intuitively, but being deliberate, being self controlled and be sound or healthy in faith your confidence in God in love towards God and other people in endurance stick at it I mean one thing about being old is that you've been going at it for longer so so keep going endure look forward to what God has in store for you keep running to the end 
I watched the Women's Marathon, the Commonwealth Games last night. Anyone watch that on, on TV? And the Aussie, uh, Jessica Stenson. Amazing performance, amazing display of, of persevering to the end, of endurance. So it's the men amongst us. This is a picture of a Christian man to aspire to. Who wouldn't want to be this older man who's temperate, who's worthy of respect, who, who's self-controlled, who's sound in faith, in love, in endurance? And yet, I don't think that comes naturally. I mean, left to our sinful selves, older men can, can easily become something quite opposite to this. Not temperate, but volatile. Not worthy of respect, but a cranky old man. Not self-control, but unfiltered. Just does and says what he wants. That's not what God calls us to. So let's be trained by the grace of God to say no to ungodliness and to align how we live, align that with the truth of God's word. Older women. Are there any older women here? I've seen some hands. Good on you. Um, it's one of those things that, you know, people, don't, uh, that they, they talk down at their age. In some cultures, being old is a, is a sign of great, uh, is greatly, to be greatly revered and respected for your wisdom and experience. Well, even if you're not old yet, maybe you're planning to become older one day. Um, a, a dear relative of mine uh, said when she turned 70, she finally began to, uh, to describe herself as middle-aged. <laughs> What does this say to older women? Well, verse 3, likewise, in a similar way, that is line your behaviour with sound doctrine, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. Not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. And to be reverent here, it's talking about, um, about their demeanour, their, their manner, how they present themselves. Literally to have the demeanour of, of someone that befits a holy person. They are to be as a, as a holy person is. Now, I understand that women can feel a lot of uh, pressure by our culture about how they present themselves. Uh, it's not only for women, but um, perhaps it's more so for women. And so a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money can be spent trying to, to cover up who we are or who we're becoming or to, to try to look like someone that we're not or to try like someone that we look like someone we used to be. That's what our world values. There's nothing wrong with looking nice or you know, caring for yourself. But what God's Word says to older women is that the most important thing to focus on in terms of how you present yourself is to have the character, the manner of life that is, that is holy, that is reverent, that, that expresses our relationship to God. Uh, 1 Peter 3 speaks of uh, cultivating the, the beauty of a, of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. I think some of the most beautiful people I know, uh, physically, they're, they're old and wrinkled and weathered, but their character is, is beautiful, is precious. Well, this holiness, this, this reverence, is then to be expressed in action. Uh, verse 3 says the older women are, are not to be slanderers. See, knowing the truth, that should ch- actually transform the way, that we, the, way, the way we speak about other people. We mustn't be gossips and slanderers. Now, is this something that older women particularly need to hear? Perhaps. I mean, I don't know. One thing I've noticed about when women get together, there's one thing that there seems to be quite a lot of, that is 
talking. Um, maybe that's why slander is mentioned. But I think this is something we all need to hear. Is the way that we speak, has that been shaped? Is that, is that changed? Particularly the way we speak about other people, is that changed by the grace of God? Uh, thirdly, older women are, are not to be addicted to much wine. Literally, it's, it's, it's to not be slaves to it. Uh, alcohol is not the way to cope with the difficulties of life. It's not the way to escape your troubles. Now, for many people, having a drink is, is not a problem. The, and the Bible makes clear that, that uh, alcohol is, a, is part of God's good creation. But like many things that are good, it can be misused. It can be abused. And I, mean, I think alcohol addiction is a massive problem in Australia. And yet, at the same time, drunkenness is still embraced and almost celebrated as a good thing. I mean, it's kind of part of being Australian. I think this is a point at which actually we need to be different. As Christians, we must stand out as being different and say no to drunkenness, to not being enslaved to alcohol. I want to say, if this is a particular problem for you, or maybe if it's not a not a problem, there's no problem here. If you're just wondering, let me encourage you to, to have a chat to someone. You know, talk to your GP, talk to a trusted friend. Make sure that you're not and that you don't become enslaved to alcohol. I think this is a massive problem and we're not immune from it. Last thing for older women, they have to be teachers. They are to teach what is good. And the reason is given there in verse 4. It's then or so that they can urge or literally train the younger women. Older women, your words, your actions, by them you should, you should be a model, a trainer for younger women. That's your God-given role and responsibility. Notice there, Titus is not told to teach and train the younger women. That's the task that's much more appropriately taken on by older women. So let me encourage you, women, whatever age you are, because you're all older than someone, let me encourage you to, to take an interest in the women who are younger than you. You can be a great help, you can be a great encouragement to them in, in living as a godly woman. And let me encourage you, younger women, which is pretty much everyone here, because you're younger than someone, get to know those women whose experience and wisdom can be an enormous benefit and encouragement to you. I think often in churches we can tend to clump together with people who are sort of our age and stage, and there's something good about that. Uh, but let's not lose the, the richness of relationship that God gives us and the opportunities that he provides for the older to train the younger. Let's look for those opportunities. Uh, verse 4, they are to train the younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands. Um, now, this is speaking about younger women, assuming that they are married, which in those times was usually the case. Notice, firstly, they're to be trained to love their husbands. This is something they need to, to learn. It, it doesn't just necessarily come naturally, but it's something to be worked at. Likewise, women are to be trained to love their children, I think it's often just assumed that well, you know, mothers will love their children naturally. Um, that might they may have a, a strong natural bond uh, of affection for them. They may not, not always. But I think this is speaking of something more than than that. It's talking about truly loving your children 
to give them, giving them the priority and importance that they should have as your children to act in love for their, them and for their good. And that's something to be learned. That's something to be worked at. It's something that, that's part of living a changed lifestyle, changed by the grace of God. Uh, verse 5, um, young women are also taught to be self-controlled. There's that, that word again. Like the older men, they're t- they're, they too are to be thoughtful about their behaviour. They're, they're to be deliberate, they're to be in control. In the context, it, it next speaks about being pure. So perhaps this is speaking of a, of a sexual purity and, and, a, and a self-control. They're, they're to love their husbands and, and not to seek any sexual relationship outside of marriage, but rather to be pure. Next instruction, now this might offend some cultural sensitivities. Young women are to be busy at home, or as ESV puts it, to be workers at home. And what does this mean? Well, firstly, notice what it doesn't mean. Uh, It's not talking about particular domestic duties and saying that, you know, she must do the vacuuming and the ironing. ironing And sadly, tragically, uh, I'm sure this passage has been twisted and and abused by some men as as a horrendous form of spiritual abuse. This is not commenting on who does what domestic duty. I think you just use common sense and love to work that out. But neither, and neither does it say that women shouldn't work outside the home. To say that they should be good workers of the home doesn't necessarily exclude them from being good workers outside the home too. And it doesn't say that men shouldn't also be workers of the home. In fact, 1 Timothy 3 describes a godly man as someone who manages his own home well. So men also need to be engaged and active in the, the well running of their households. And the kind of 1950s stereotype of the emotionally absent father, you know, with his newspaper distant from his family, being a lazy slob, really that, that's got, that has got nothing to do with biblical, a biblical picture of, um, of men. So what is this saying? Well, what it's doing is affirming that it's right and appropriate for a woman to be a good worker of her home, to be loving and caring for her husband, her children, that is a good and right thing to do. Now, I think we in 21st century Australia need to hear this. Let me speak as a, as a man, recognising as the Scriptures do, that actually for young women, this is better coming from older women. But I think we all need to hear this, both men and women. The feminist movement over the last 50 years has, has brought about some good and, and needed changes. But sadly, it's also done much to devalue the importance of a woman's relationship with her, with, within her family. Uh, I'm told that, uh, that women often feel expected to, to, to have it all, to, to have the satisfying, progressive career, or at least to bring in the dough, and to be the perfect mother and wife. And, and if you don't have it all, well, you're seen as some sort of failure or tempted to see yourself that way. I think this passage is a, is a helpful corrective to that way of thinking. Now, it's not saying you, you shouldn't work, out, work in a job outside the home. It doesn't actually comment on that. Other parts of the Bible do give examples of industrious business women. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of, um, of Proverbs 31, uh, with the superwoman of Proverbs 31 who somehow managed to, to work inside and outside the home quite amazingly. What God's Word does here is it reinforces the value and the importance of young women who are married, having children, giving themselves to that important and godly work of loving and serving their families. That must be part of their priority. 
part of their godliness. I think it's a helpful corrective in a culture that often devalues family and devalues motherhood in particular. Um, the last word to, to women is also quite countercultural. Verse 5, women are to be subject to their husbands. Again, note what it's not saying. It's not saying always do whatever he says. Rather, it's, it's about recognising and respecting the responsibility that God has given to your husband. And husbands, you're not sure what that is. Your responsibility is not spelled out here, but have a read of Ephesians 5 and see the important responsibility that God has placed upon you to sacrificially love your wife, to always act for her good, to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives are to, to recognise and respect that responsibility. How are you going? Hanging in there? Two groups to go. But before we look at, the, we look at what it says to young men and to slaves, notice the end of verse 5, the reason that's given for living this way, it's so that no one will malign the Word of God. See, look at the connection between the teaching about Jesus, the Word of God, and our behaviour. That this Word should change the way we live. And if, it, if we don't change, well, this Word is actually maligned. It's slandered, it's abused. So live this changed life so that no one will malign the Word of God. Young men. Verse 6, similarly encourage the young men to be self-controlled. One word for the young men, self-controlled. Why do they only get one thing to focus on? <laughs> the rude women amongst us will say it's because they can only concentrate on one thing at a time. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. But it may be that, that self-control captures what young men particularly need to work on. That, that soundness of mind that, that thinks about how we behave. It's not rash, it's not extreme or out of control, but, but it's considered, it's deliberate under control, making the effort to, to, to stop and think about our behaviour. What's wrong with it? What do I need to change? And then change. That's self-control. And you might think through all sorts of areas of life where self-control is called for, uh, sexual purity, not getting angry, uh, other, you know, other areas. It's interesting, the one area that, that Paul picks on for Titus to work on and model to the young men is in the area of speech. He says, verse 7, In everything set them an example by doing what is good in your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. And self-control is related to how we speak. And we're not to, to argue and complain and carry on. A speech should be characterised by, by integrity. By the, our, our motives should be pure. We're not on about promoting ourselves. That there should be a certain seriousness to what we say. And I wonder if young men need to be reminded that it's, it's actually it's not all just a big joke. There's a seriousness about life. And there should be a, a soundness of speech, a healthiness that cannot be condemned. And this is, of course, not unique to young men. All of us need to keep working at, it, at this area of our speech if we're to live consistent with God's Word. Uh, lastly, slaves. It's not a direct parallel, but I think there are implications for how we behave in our workplaces. Um, if you know God through Jesus, then that will and that must affect how you conduct yourself at work. Uh, we'll respect those in authority over us. We, we'll be characterised by honesty, by a willingness to, to work, and there'll be no 
defiance in our conduct? Will we be trustworthy? As God's people, as people who've been saved, who belong to Jesus, our conduct at work will be different. And notice the reason there at the end of verse 10. It's so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Our changed lifestyle will, will adorn the teaching about God. People will see the difference that this teaching makes. So by way of application, let me ask you, from these five pictures of the Christian life, how is the grace of God that has called you to belong to Jesus, how is that calling you to, to, to change or, or to keep going at living a changed life? How does and will your life align with sound doctrine, with the Word of God? How will your life commend and adorn the Word of God? Is it being temperate, being self-controlled, worthy of respect, reverent in manner, not addicted to alcohol, not slandering, sound in faith, in love, endurance, I'm going to leave you have a think about that. Let me encourage you to, to do that. Let me go home, read over this passage and think, how, how do I need to take on board God's word and, and live a life that accords with, that fits with sound doctrine? How do I need to change? How do I need to continue living a changed life? What do I need to say no to as we strive to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. But as we do that, in all of that, remember the motivation. The motivation is the grace of God. Jesus has given himself for us to redeem us, to purify us, to, to call us to belong to himself, to make us his very own people who are eager to do what is good. We're called to, we're called to be what in Jesus God has already saved us and made us to be. Yeah, that does involve work. It does involve saying no to ungodly, selfish stuff. It does involve discipline. It does involve self-control. And we won't always get it right. And when we fail, we need to keep coming back to the grace of God found in Jesus. But as we do this, it's not an oppressive burden. It's a liberating joy and delight to live the way that God has made us to be. I guess finally I want to say uh, to anyone who may be here who's not a Christian and made it through the end of this long sermon, well done, uh, or those watching online, uh, I want to say I hope that you can see something of what it means to, to live as a Christian life, of the difference that that makes to life. I hope that you, you do come to see that the teaching about Jesus is in fact the truth and that you want to accept what he's done for you. Put your trust in him and live as one of his redeemed, purified, precious people. Uh, if you want to know more about that, please feel free to talk to me uh, at the end or send me a message through the Connect form. But how about I pray for us as we finish? Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, we praise you that you are gracious and that you've shown your grace to us in Jesus. Father, for the times that we've failed to live your way, where we've sought to live independent of you and define for ourselves who we are and, and what we want to be. Father, forgive us. 
And Father, we thank you for your grace that Jesus gave himself for us to purify us, to redeem us, to make us a people that are his very own. Father, please continue to shape us and teach us and motivate us, empower us to live out your grace in our lives, to live lives that fit with who we are in Jesus. We ask for your help in this, in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.